Hey everyone, today is the 23rd of April and that is St George's Day, the patron saint of England. So a bonus episode I've just dropped into your feeds is some of the best books, podcasts, fiction, true crime, all set in England. I couldn't include everything because there's just been way too much and it would go on for two hours. So if you have a favourite that I haven't put in this one, if you go back on the podcast feed, you'll be able to find that review there. So happy St George's Day. Hope you all enjoy listening. You are listening to True Crime Fiction, feeding your addiction to the best of the written and the spoken word in crime. If you would like to support the podcast, you can do so for as little as £1 at patreon.com slash truecrimefiction. The Boy in the Woods is the latest true crime offering from BBC Radio 4. In it, journalist Winifred Marks delves into the case that has stayed with her for 20 years and speaks deeply to our understanding of truth. Ricky Neve was only six when he was found murdered in 1994 in the woods near his home of Peterborough. His mother, Ruth, was widely understood to be struggling to parent effectively and to be addicted to drugs, meaning she was already known to police and social services. Murders of children so young are thankfully unusual, so the national press were of course interested, and soon the small Welland estate was flooded with police and reporters. However, while it appeared to many onlookers that Ruth and her violently inadequate parenting would be the main suspect, she was acquitted when the case came to trial. The case then lay cold for 20 years until new breakthroughs in DNA found that someone else had killed Ricky and they were tried and convicted. Marx manages to not just tell the story of Ricky's murder, but delves further into what lay behind the police and press insistence that it must have been Ruth who was behind the murder. Reports of her harsh punishment of her children, as well as Ricky having to steal from local shops because he was starving, was probably enough to make up most people's minds. It is hard to feel sympathy for someone who is so willing to mistreat children. However, that laser-like focus on Ruth meant that other suspects were ignored. While the case and this misdirection in it makes it interesting one in its own right, what elevates this podcast is the last episode where Marks let us hear interviews with Dean Neve, Ricky's stepfather who should probably have also been charged with trial cruelty, but never was. She also discusses the role of social services and how their chronic underfunding meant that no matter how many lessons are learned, we are doomed to repeat the mistakes again until we start prioritising vulnerable children instead of just pursuing those who abuse them as an act of mourning or revenge. For more on how we're letting down vulnerable children, see our episode on Baby X. In the content creating world which is bent towards crime, murder is always considered the worst. Most cultures and civilizations have always done so. Although some may disagree with the concept of all murders being bad, given how throughout history there have always been some lives considered less. However, there is generally agreement that murder is the worst and rape comes a close second in the hierarchy of crime. 
Baby X by former detective Harry Keeble does at times strain this concept. He has worked on some of the most horrific cases of child abuse that have been uncovered in recent years and has flown around the world, sparing no expense to track down abusers. It would appear as though this could be a heroic job, saving kids where it would be easy to aggrandise oneself. Keeble, however, remains with both feet planted firmly on the ground and details the great difficulties faced by everybody working in child protection due to the chronic underfunding and cyclical nature of abuse. Baby X is in fact well written and needed, but ultimately a terrible book. If you prefer to dabble in the sunny uplands of life and turn away from reality, then I heartily recommend that you do not read this. However, it is necessary to remind ourselves not just that such awful abuse happens, but that it continues to happen. And for every generation where we do not actively address the problem, we create another generation that will perpetuate the same issue. If it does take a village to raise a child, this village has taken its eyes off the ball for too long. Cozy crime is a genre that is often spoken about with a sneer. Exactly the same kind of snobbish tone that is used with terms like chiclet or domestic drama. It presupposes that there is a right or canonical type of crime, and then there is crime for those who are not strong enough to take it. The Bingo Hall Detectives by Jonathan Whitelaw could not be further from the well-worn tropes of the gritty city underbelly and male detectives who wear their substance abuse like a uniform. It is set in the Cumbrian town of Penrith, whose most famous resident was Richard III. The detectives are out-of-work journalist Jason and his mother-in-law Amita, both of whom get an A-star for rubbing each other up the wrong way. When a bingo regular is found dead, everyone believes it is an accident, apart from wily amateur, who has a terrifying sense of determination. Jason is reluctantly roped into helping her investigate. Without a phalanx of professionals such as forensic scientists, anthropologists and a murder squad, much of the book is spent weighing up if there has indeed been a murder and if it is worth pursuing. This is probably the main difference between cosy crime and hard crime. It's everydayness. The fact that investigating is done between picking up the kids from school and cooking and searching for a job. If crime as a genre is indeed about relieving us of our own anxieties about the world by righting wrongs, then so-called cosy crime and its propensity for putting acts of violence right beside the everyday mundanities of life is indeed the most rebellious act in crime writing. To threaten the reader with reality, rather than the cipher of the detective on whom we can project our fears about society and life and then send them off on the written page like a scapegoat, carrying our sins into the desert. Science fiction and crime fiction make an extremely potent mix, best exemplified in China Meville's The City and the City, 
the combination of working out what has happened in the crime and also unraveling world building to understand the culture and history of a future or different universe means that a reader's synapses will be firing more than normal and the satisfaction of finding the solution to the crime while understanding the implications of the sometimes extremely unusual context means the dopamine hit at the end is higher. The latest offering in these blended genres is London in Black by Jack Lutz. We find ourselves in the near future, 2029, so close that we could expect the London of the title to resemble the one we know today. However, while the landmarks and street names are the same, there is one large difference. London and the whole of the UK has recently undergone a series of biochemical terrorist attacks, releasing a nerve gas which kills those who are susceptible in terribly gruesome ways. Our protagonist, Lucy, is understandably suffering from PTSD and almost all of the people we meet have lost someone and are grieving while trying to rebuild their lives and sense of normality. A shared national trauma and grief isn't the only difference in this future, as religious and political groups have formed out of the chaos, and when a scientist who may have an antidote for those who are vulnerable to the nerve gas is found murdered, there are many who may have killed for the highly profitable information. It is impossible not to see the parallels with the two years of pandemic we have just lived through. The early fear, the stockpiling, the profiteering, and extreme divisions it highlighted, rich versus poor, science versus religion, the fallout of which we are yet to fully experience. It is these parallels which makes London in black feel so immediate and vital, yet the difference between terrorist attack and natural pandemic allows us to distance our own recent experiences, rendering it a more comfortable read than a direct lockdown or pandemic novel may give us right now. One of the problems in the art of world building can often be too much exposition, but Lutz wisely takes a back seat and lets us explore his world as we wish all the while weaving past, present and future together in a way that, thanks to the past few years, appears far more realistic than it may have felt in the 20-teens. Keep your ears peeled on the podcast for an interview with the author Jack Lutz, coming soon. Halifax Slasher is an eight-episode deep dive from the Audible Stable. It's 1938 in the Yorkshire town of Halifax. There is a man who at night lies in wait for young women and slashes their clothing and sometimes their bodies with a sharp instrument. As the provincial police force struggle with this unusual crime spree, the town falls into a frenzy of suspicion and vigilante justice. While the premise of the Halifax slasher is intriguing, it is unfortunately let down by its execution. Each episode is punctuated with imagined reconstructions of conversations between the police, victims and witnesses, or residents. 
Some of these conversations have a dramatic or almost comedic bent to them, which means the tone of the whole piece is uneven, giving the listener a bumpy ride. Perversely, the technique that is meant to add drama to the story actually makes it less enjoyable for those of us who are true crime aficionados. True crime is a serious genre, and it is true that there are some successful and enjoyable true crime and comedy podcasts out there. They tend to be presented by hosts who expertly handle the change in mood and never leave the audience in doubt as to their intentions with the subject matter. This is probably possible because their style is more free-flowing and, although scripted to some extent, is also flexible. Whereas the Halifax Slasher, the rigid scripting perversely creates content that is advertised as true crime, but often feels more like crime fiction. True crime bears as much relation to crime fiction as commercial historical non-fiction does to fantasy. They make solid foundations, but you don't want to build the rest of your house on it. Another important part of the true crime puzzle is also missing, and that is reflection. Yeah, there is some, but the last episode's conclusion amounts to no one really understands this, shrug shoulders. There are interviewees whom I would have liked to hear more from to understand the psychology, motivation and societal and social norms, given a very short amount of time on air and relegated to a supporting role next to the actors. Halifax Slasher could have benefited from at least one more episode to fully explore the meaning and legacy of the events, although that would make for a more satisfying conclusion it would not fully make up for the tonal lurches. True crime, at its best, is about digging underneath criminal behaviours to try and get at deeper truths about humans as individuals and wider society. Possibly it's something about providing ourselves with comforting thought ordering, understanding, sometimes laughing at and resolving in our own minds the worst in this world. Unfortunately, the promise of this in the Halifax Slasher did not come to fruition, but for someone who is just dipping their toes in the world of true crime podcasting, this may be a more cosy and comforting start than some of the more gruesome and well-known crimes and criminals who regularly get explored in this world. For most people, losing a loved one to a violent murder is probably the worst thing we could imagine happening to ourselves or anyone we know. Even thinking about it happening is so terrifying that most people would not let the thoughts settle on their minds. Of all the worst things that we cannot think about happening to our dear ones, illness, car crash, accident, very few people would even think that someone close to them could be a violent, heptophilic killer. After all, that's the sort of thing that happens in books. And besides, we all know our families, don't we? It is this unthinkable thing that Alex Sharkey has confronted within his own life. His brother, Stuart Campbell, committed a violent crime, and to make it even worse, if that is possible, it was Campbell's 15-year-old niece, Danielle Jones, who had been a bridesmaid at Campbell's wedding and whom he had become sexually obsessed with and killed. 
Sharkey spends the book ricocheting between dissections of his upbringing and family, looking at the past with an almost forensic detail to try and find understanding and his own ever-evolving thinking from the day he first hears of his brother's involvement all the way through to his trial and conviction. Sharkey roller coasters through emotions of fear, confusion, shame, and anger, at times wanting to beat his brother and at others calmly helping the police to try and catch him. Some things that the brothers experienced as children are not that unusual poverty, a Catholic upbringing, finding dad's softcore porn stash. However, there are other things that probably had a deeper impact. Their father's alcoholism, his brutality towards their mother and his own kids, similar abuse in the extended family, and being brought up in a day and age when men were defined by a stoicism which is truly unhealthy. As a teenager, Sharkey had his own brush with the law, and the aimless hedonism of his youth probably meant that many would have picked the teetotal good-looking Stuart to be the more successful of the two. However, decades later, Sharkey is living in Paris, having worked at achingly hit magazines, and exploring his spirituality. We slowly learn, though, that in the same time, Stuart has been committing crimes involving young women and girls, which has remained hidden from his family, who believed he is jailed for theft, brought on by the poverty he found himself in with a wife and young baby to provide for. Sharkey does ultimately find some explanation as to what stunted his brother's growth, so that he ended up choosing a different, darker path. However, this in itself does not bring all the closure one would hope, because Campbell is still in jail, refusing to tell anyone what he has done with Danielle's body. So while Sharkey has written a searingly honest examination of family, upbringing, casual daily violence, addiction, and the darkness that can be hidden from others, a viewpoint which we so seldom hear because of the shame those related to killers feel, we still have to hope that one day he can write a new final chapter to his autobiography and we can lay Danielle to rest. For more on what it's like to have a killer in the family, Check out the episodes on Happy Face Season 1 and Happy Face Season 2. It's a tale as old as time. Boy grows up beside girl. Boy falls for girl. Boy shoots his shot. Girl rejects boy. Boy unleashes a campaign of harassment including death threats against the girl. As such, the 200-year-old tale of Eliza Balsam's death in 1821 shows how stalking, harassment and violence has always been interlinked. This podcast from BBC Radio Bristol takes us through the setup, the violence, the death and the subsequent trial. Just to keep up with the theme of the exhaustingly dull and unimaginatively repetitive way that stalking and harassment plays out, there is even a historian interviewed to tell you that he did not think John, who had been recorded threatening Eliza's life, actually meant to hurt Eliza. He probably just wanted to scare her. However, curious comparisons about the eternal nature of patriarchal assumptions in attitudes towards crime is not the purpose 
or the climax of the podcast. Indeed, what makes this case worthy of this fun-sized podcast is what the doctor who tried to save Eliza's life did with John Horwood's body afterwards. In order not to spoil what will either be a shock or a surprise to you, I shall currently keep that information to myself. However, it is highly indicative of a culture which was far less squeamish than our own. For more historical true crime podcasts, check out my episodes on Bad Bridget, Lady Killers and Criminal Broads. It is possibly not immediately obvious, but both romance and crime share a vital element that without which neither of them can work. Opportunity. The current proliferation of technologies means that there are more opportunities for both romance and crime than ever before, and in Sweet Bobby, both of them collide in a catfishing scam of unprecedented proportions. Hewitt Assis is a young, vibrant woman with a career as both a marketer and a radio host. From the British Sikh community, she is exactly the kind of woman who you could see only growing in confidence and skill and becoming highly successful. She would easily be considered a catch by most people's standards. She does catch the interest of an acquaintance, Bobby, the older brother of a cousin's boyfriend, and their relationship blossoms very slowly into one that is romantic. So far, so lovely. However, it isn't long into the relationship that Bobby starts to show a darker, more controlling side. Kira stops seeing people and doing things she would normally do. She starts to lose an amount of weight that worries those around her. However, whenever she starts to question Bobby to pull away from the relationship, his health, already precarious, rapidly declines and Kirat is pulled back in. What makes the scam so devastating is the length of time the relationship carries on for. Ten years with Bobby always ducking and diving, giving Kirat enough hope to mean she gets pulled back in, but never truly appearing or moving things forward. Eventually, through a series of circumstances, Kirat confronts the real Bobby, who has been living quite happily with his wife and child, totally oblivious to either her existence or that of the fake Bobby who was impersonating him and his life. This is when things really fall apart because very soon after, the person who has spent so long pretending to be Bobby, abusing and manipulating Kirat, reveals themselves. It is hard to describe just how shocking this revelation is and if it was a shock to us as listeners, understanding the devastation Kirat must have felt feels unfathomable. At this point, the podcast changes from a retelling of a crime story into an investigation, because despite this individual confessing to more than one person, they have never been arrested for either identity theft or coercive control. 
they have a high power career, have recently got engaged and to all intents and purposes appear to be living a fulfilling life while Kirat finds herself shunned and struggling to pull the pieces of her life back together. Host and investigative journalist Alex Mostros speaks to several lawyers trying to understand exactly why the police have not charged the duplicitous, mendacious individual. It is a testament to Kirat's strength and integrity that she continues to work with the legal team to pursue the case when many of those close to her appear to want her to just forget it all and move on. However, moving on quickly may be possible if you've experienced something that lasted only a few weeks or months, but Kirat lost a whole decade with an alarmingly sophisticated scam and a deep betrayal. While it is unlikely that many catfishing scams people experience are as elaborate with a cast of many characters, they do happen and are probably underreported due to the sense of shame that victims feel something that abusers have relied on to protect themselves for time immemorial. In telling her story, with the expert help of Alex, Kira not only frees herself, there is power in speaking the truth, but also asks important questions of those who are not only there to protect us, but whom we also expect to help deliver justice when things go wrong. Currently, Kirat is a sole voice in the wilderness but I do not believe she will be on her own for very long. You have been listening to True Crime Fiction, the podcast that is feeding your addiction to all things crime. You can find our website at true-crime-fiction.com, on Twitter at true underscore crime underscore fic, on Facebook and Instagram as True Crime Fiction. Please rate and review on the podcast app of your choice. Music is by Kitty Kitty Meow Meow.